by the end of this conversation, what is it you want people to do, say, and remember? I mean, in terms of what I want them to do is I want them to, to have an open mind about business development and how it's not how it used to be, not 20 years ago, not 10 years ago, not five years ago, and not even necessarily six months or a year ago. It's a constantly evolving process. And um, I think they, people just need to have a, a fresh look, a, fr- a fresh take on, on an old thing. Yeah, the conditions have changed. So if you don't adapt, you die. Simple as, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think that I think that's basically it. the The fundamentals have never shifted. You know, like if you look at a, if you look, I don't know, if if you tasted a cheesecake now compared to a cheesecake fifty years ago, it's going to be different. But fundamentally, it's the same thing. And if you go to some restaurants, maybe they put some uh, raspberry coulis on it. You know, you go to some, they bake it, some it's in the fridge. Fundamentally, it's all the same. Right? But there are obviously places that do a better cheesecake. And, and I, f- I kind of find business development to be like that. There's nothing new. This is just humans talking to humans about problems and solutions. Nothing new about that. But it's all the nuance within that that makes it incredibly um, unique and, and, and different. And so there's been a lot of movements around that. On the one hand, the more things change, the more things stay the same. And on the other hand, well, things are bloody changing. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the messages. Like people are making a lot of mistakes at the moment with Outbound. Okay, so what are the common mistakes? I mean, some of the common mistakes is they completely mis, they misallocate resources in how hard it is to get hold of people, how hard it is to start those conversations and the rate that those conversations convert. So they have very happy ears. Uh, what was the second thing you said? Get hold of them, rate to conversion. There was something in between. Uh, it's just that whole process. They overestimate oh, yeah. their abilities, both to get hold of people and then convert those people. That's a, a fundamental mistake. So then they'll build... And what, what are they underestimating? How long things take and how hard it is. They think, oh, well, if I was to sit on the phone for eight hours a day, I'd be able to speak to 30 people. And if I spoke to 30 people, I could probably get five meetings. So five meetings a day. Whereas in practice, no one's ever actually set five meetings in a day. This is a theoretical approach that they're taking off, I don't know, an idea that's uh, an idea that they had. And I see a lot of that. There's a beautiful Unrealistic quote targets. from Richard Feynman. And I yeah, the first principle is you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. Yeah, And I see that happen depressingly frequently. And, and people also think it's how they were. You know, there's that, that classic condition of everyone's always managing for how the business should have run two years ago. They were in the role two to five years ago. Now they've come through the ranks and they're at a leader and they're trying to fix all the things that was wrong for when they were in the... They're fighting position. the last war. Exactly. The Mazinai and- line. And with the rates of change, with the speed things are changing, your VP of sales no longer has relevant outbound experience. So they build a system that worked for them when they were in SDR. But even if that was two years ago, that was too late. It demands a, a, a rethink in middle management and how you can leverage middle management for success. People much closer to the action. But that would mean you'd have to listen to them. 
<laughs> yeah, sure. Some cultural shifts there, right? Um, <clears throat> but well, I, I had a really interesting conversation with a fascinating guy called Ravi Rajani, and what was really interesting was my wife popped out of the dining room and held up a piece of card with man written in very large letters because that he just started out with, you know, how are you, man, and all of this sort of stuff. And I just felt so old. <laughs> um, but, um, th- there is that disconnect because coming at me charging like that, if it wasn't me, if he'd been doing that to my wife, she'd have just hung up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that uh, absolutely. <laughs> now he he was very good. I'm sure he would have done his research, and he wouldn't have come at it charging like a bull in a china shop. But I've just um, uh, ignored uh, the fifth in a row of an automated sequence that someone connected with me and then pitch slapped me, mm-hmm. and it's dear Marcus Kauke every single time. So I always know because um, there's absolutely no personalization at all. I'm just curious to see how long it goes on for. I was going to disconnect, but I decided yes. not to. I like to see people's sequences, but at the same time, I feel like we're doing ourselves a disservice, right? Yes. Because the, the trends, I mean, if you look at the buyer trends, how they're looking to achieve, how they are looking to achieve outcomes with minimal sales input, they want to facilitate a, a you know, purchase without interacting with the salesperson it's becoming harder and harder to start those conversations. And you're getting to the point where almost like in a relationship where you're so scared of rejection that you won't get into a relationship to begin with, we're starting to cut off our noses to spite our face as buyers. People can't get hold of you. How are they meant to pitch slap you? You know, how are they meant to say, hey, you're on this professional network, you're here to learn, you're here to network, you're here to grow, you're here to connect. I think you may have this problem. Do you have this problem? I don't know anything about you. I'm just asking, do you have the problem? Like I can walk up to a stranger in the street and say, do you have the time for me? And that is polite society. I could ask them directions. I could ask them where they got their coat from. I could ask them anything. But if I say, hey, does this problem exist in your professional capacity? Oh, don't you fucking pitch slap me. How dare you? Like, you know, you you don't get to talk to me about that. You haven't put in your research or you haven't like... Well, Why yes, are we making it so hard? It feels different because in a, a platform like LinkedIn, I'm there to try and form relationships and to try and bring some value. Now, that may be different to what other people are trying to accomplish, but by swamping inboxes with poorly thought through and irrelevant stuff, telling me that they're specialists in SEO and websites uh, and they've worked with a lot of people in my industry, it's not trying to endear me in any way, shape or form. So all they're doing is they're creating a barrier. And I think part of the problem with Outbound, and I, I don't disagree that Outbound has its place and is incredibly valuable, but I've just worked on um, trying to get three meetings for our ecosystem yeah. I got seven out of seven in four days with yeah. zero friction and zero effort other than offering a pitch, which is, look, we've never worked together. It could turn into a complete car crash. I've got no idea whether it's going to be any good, but I am going to bring together six of my brightest friends and you bring your brightest people together. And we're going to work on your gnarliest problem and we'll give you two hours of our time. And at the end of it, We'll write it up and you can do whatever you like with it. You can keep it. You can give it to someone else. You can try and do it yourself. 
you can bring us in, but that's not the purpose. We want to see what the experience is like and we want that feedback. Okay, so, now, so let me ask you this. Let me challenge you here. Yeah. Do you think you would be able to get a 19-year-old to pitch that same message to those same seven people and get the same outcome? I'm questioning. Well, I, I think that's the wrong end of the problem. I'm not sure whether that 19-year-old needs to be doing that job. I think that 19-year-old could be much better deployed on another activity that didn't involve seven hours and 57 minutes of not talking to the person they intend to talk to, which is pretty much what the average is when people are dialing out. Because they speak to, based on uh, Connect and Sales data, the average SDR speaks to um, another human being who's on their prospect list for about three minutes a day. Now, Yeah, I think, that, like, I think that's probably a bit low. But either way, I get the point, right? It, yeah. it is a, it's a, it's a lead. But here's another scenario where that same thing exists. Golf. You mm -hmm. can be on the, I don't play golf, but you could be on the, the course for 12 hours, but hey, you're only playing golf for four minutes. Say I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Or, you know, fielding in cricket. I don't know, being the goalkeeper in soccer. If you're on the golf course for 12 hours, you're still only playing golf for four minutes. It's the impact, literally the impact of golf, but it's yeah. the impact that counts. And that's fine. I don't mind the four minutes that the salesperson is actually playing and what they have to do to get there. But broadly, there's the shift towards outbound, not working in certain ways. You needing to have the messenger is important. And that's what you get and what we're seeing in social selling. And I'm part of a climate, uh, um, a charity that's trying to accelerate the carbon zero, net neutral, whatever. You know, we're trying to accelerate government and, and societal change yeah. to adopt better climate practices. And one of our tenants is that it is about the messenger. Because the science is resolved. There's 99.99%. It's a unanimous. Scientists agree. So it's no longer about information. Yet still, there's a huge percentage who don't believe, who disagree, well, who argue. And I mean, not to get in any of that politics, more just to say that the messenger has an incredible impact, which is significantly discounted in how we've structured sales. I could not agree more. And my, my beef with outbound is that it sets the people up who have to execute it to fail. And it dri drives most of them into the ground because there is next to no real thought by leadership. Because as you were saying in the green room, most often the general is fighting the last war. They're fighting the war that they fought the last time uh, instead of this time. And uh, again, we, you know, if we take the Second World War, mm. the uh, French built the Maginot Line yeah. and Britain decided to declare war on Germany when they invaded Poland after appeasing them, not being at all prepared. And for the first four years, they had their asses whipped absolutely completely. Yeah. And luckily, we had the channel, um, which was you know, uh, something of a barrier. Otherwise, there's no way we'd have made it. In Malta, where my parents grew up and where I was born, they were so bad, they were down to two Spitfires. And when one convoy came in after they hadn't had any food for ages, they left it sat on the docks for a week, and then it got bombed. I mean, how mm -hmm. stupid were they? Okay, so the, the problem is, Often it's down to really, really dumb leadership that's bought badly, has failed to plan, has set 
targets and uh, objectives on the basis of out-of-date information and without really thinking about the um, consequences of their piss-poor decisions. That's my opinion. Don't get me wrong. I think the I know outbound works. We've got a lot of clients. So that's who we do yeah. outbound for. But don't, I also turn away a lot of clients because I'll sit there and I'll talk to them. And I'll say, "What's your average customer value? What's your your proposition?" Which you know, we'll go through the whole the whole process. And I'll be like, "To be honest, I I don't I wouldn't feel good taking your money because outbound is not the right motion for you. However, you can do it, and I will do it for you under these circumstances. You're a well funded startup." that is more interested in market research, market feedback to fund product development. Mm-hmm. Therefore, this is coming out of a marketing budget and a research budget. Sure. But if you are taking this from a sales budget, looking for a positive return on investment, this won't work. And the only other time is if you're also expecting monopoly money with silly exponentials in your next capital raise, and you need to get some runs on the board. But like then there's a strategic purpose to it but the purpose is not revenue generation per se. Now, we're in violent agreement. So my guest today is Ricky Pearl, CEO and founder of Pointer. You can guess from his accent, he's not from these shores, uh, but he's not from the shores that he's in either. So Ricky, would you mind giving us 60 to 90 seconds on your history, please? Sure. Ricky Pearl, originally from South Africa, imported to Australia, had a Fair few unique businesses in South Africa, ranging from laser hair removal clinics, cosmetics factories, marketing agency, printing business, all great easy businesses in South Africa, none of which could be imported to Australia because you run into a beautiful beast called Therapeutic Goods Administration, which if you look up bureaucracy in the dictionary, you will find uh, how these organizations run. Now, I'm very privileged to- The Australian Civil Service. Exactly. There's that joke. How do you, you know, how do you stop an Australian? Well, you just put an orange beacon in front of them. You just put a cone in front of them. I'm like, we'll follow the rules. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm super privileged. I love living in a society that mostly follows the rules. And I'm glad those rules exist, you know, um, but those businesses couldn't translate. I came to Australia. Um, I had this entrepreneurial spirit from South Africa. I moved to a country where there is generally a pretty weak culture around selling, very conflict averse, very risk averse. And I just saw this opportunity, like people really need help selling here. And we've opened up Pointer. I mean, I've been here for 12 years as you know, I won't bore you with the the middle piece. And, um, you know, we've set up Pointer to help businesses grow without the growing pains. And, um, you know, been around only about a year, but luckily going from strength to strength. When you say from strength to strength, you know, describe the trajectory. Because I know it's been pretty meteoric. <laughs> Honestly, I wouldn't even call it meteoric because I call it really slow and steady. We decided we're going to take on one client a month, every month, no more, ideally not less, just at a rate that we can consistently grow. Because you know how hard it is as a VP of sales to build an outbound motion. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got to do that on repeat time and time again. When I say I, I've got a great team behind me. You know, it's not just I, it's we. And we have to do this on repeat. So now we're running fair few amount outbound motions, which are all challenging. And the one unique thing, it's kind of, I don't know if it's like elite sports or something like that, where knowing what to do doesn't make it any easier. 
I could sit on the time. I could sit on the side of a court and tell you know the world's number one exactly what he needs to do. Oh, you just need to run faster. Actually, doing it incredibly challenging. So um, we've done incredibly well. The metrics I'm proud of. The vast majority of our clients have stuck with us. Those that have left have because they've reached capacity within their business and could no longer grow at that rate. And through good conversations with us, we've said we think you should transition now from this hyper growth to a different kind of emotion. And we've moved them into like more of an inbound structured approach. So more consolidation. Exactly. Into a good consolidation. I I firmly believe like outbound has its place. And one of the primary places it has is those early stages because you can get a run on the, I could, you could be talking to a customer today. Give me the phone. You could be talking to a customer right in in the next hour, whereas through marketing and inbound and search engine optimization, that that takes time to build up. And so in the meantime, you can do outbound. It's very proactive, very active. So we've, we've done really well with our clients. Um, the, the, this now in December, we we're planning some downtime, but 40% of our clients have come to us saying, actually, Ricky, we need to start talking about putting more resources on because we're expanding, you know, which is amazing. And we are, as uh, to date, yet to have a staff member resign which uh, if you want to talk about an SDR agency, I think that's probably the most remarkable feat. That really is very remarkable in this marketplace. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Let's define what you mean by business development first. So we're both clear and the audience is too. Business development for me is a very simple equation. You have a product or a service which you designed because you thought that there was a a problem or a need. There's people that exist out there in the world or businesses that exist out there in the world that have this problem that you think your solution can solve. Business development in my mind is the process of putting those, you know, creating a shidduch as we would call it, but, you know, creating a match between that problem and that solution, just having a conversation with the people that your product was designed for to say, is this a match? Sorry, what did you call it? A shimmer? A a shidduch. It's a Yiddish word for like a a Jewish arranged marriage, like when you connect a matchmaker. Yeah. Right, okay. So yeah, so basically you're the enter. (laughs) Exactly, that's it. All I'm doing is saying, hey, you have this problem. Here's a solution. Is this a good solution for your problem? I'm not trying to sell it. I'm just like saying, hey, here it is. Is this what is this something that is interesting to you? You two go and discuss this and see if this is a good uh, right. solution okay. for you. Right. So what it's really about business development is about connecting the right people to have the right conversation. Really, that is it. To me, there's no greater predictor. If there was one KPI I would put in front of every business, there's no greater predictor than how many conversations you are having with potential customers. Because if you're not selling, great. Well, we could take that feedback into our organization and you can update the product or you can update messaging, you can update your marketing. But so even a bad, uh, a failed sale is a good conversation. So the more conversations you're having, the more you know, intelligent conversations you're having with the right people, gr- the greater your success will be. Uh, again, couldn't agree more. So again, let's just um, p- pick a bit of a fight. My challenge to the outbound motion is the unholy rush and the pressure that management and leadership seem to put their SDRs and salespeople under to try and transact instead of showing up and creating value. 
nothing nothing pisses me off than this culture that's developed where the SDRs and BDRs are these lab rats that we're happy to run to death as long as they're spinning the wheel long enough to keep their lights on for us to do do something with the electricity, you know, and then we can spit them out. The I, I'm in forums where I see really clever sales leaders for big organizations design their KPIs because they're having open conversations about it and designing it in the most ridiculous way I could possibly imagine without logic. And it's creating this culture within outbound, which is unhealthy for salespeople. I think it's unhealthy for the sales profession. And I think it's broadly unhelpful for the mid to long term of an organization. And it's not helpful for customers. Who uh, we it's certainly not with customers of. in mind. Yeah. But we, we exist because of the customer, not yeah. in spite of them. They're not an inconvenience. And uh, given that almost every sales motion and every sales metric and every marketing motion and metric is geared for the convenience of the company and the customer has become a forgotten afterthought, that's yeah. what really fucks me off to the back teeth. I am sick to the de- <laughs> to death of it and it needs to stop. And all you're doing is pissing away your investors' money and you're giving it to Google, Amazon, Facebook, and you're giving it to uh, people who you're burning out. Why yeah, would you absolutely. choose to burn out your assets? Let me give you an example, and I'm not exaggerating here. This is a way and probably the predominant way that metrics are worked out for SDRs or, or BDRs, for sales development reps or business development reps. The cold call is the appointment setters. A VP of sales would say, well, my sales target is a million dollars, whatever it is, doesn't it? Let's just talk around numbers, a million dollars. To get a million dollars, how many deals do I need? All right, I need 10 deals. Okay, to get 10 deals, how many opportunities do I need based on a a close ratio? All right, we had 25%. All right, so I need 40 opportunities. All right, to get 40 opportunities, how many discovery calls and demos do we need to get 40 opportunities? All right, well, we had about a one in five process there. Okay, so we need 200 demos done. To get 200 demos, we maybe need 250 discovery calls. Okay, we need 250 discovery calls. We have a 25% or 30% no-show rate. So we need 300 booked meetings. All right, Mr. SDR, your target is 300 booked meetings. That is how it's done. Mm -hmm. There is no, hold on, let's start from the customer up. If I was to call 100 people a day, how many would say yes? Okay, one would say yes. All right, well, if I'm getting one meeting a day, how does that translate to my revenue targets? Mm-hmm. So here, they've just got, they started with 300. That's like me calculating how fast I have to run to Sydney to be there by, by breakfast. It doesn't matter what pace you give me, I'm not going to achieve it. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you see this with the overassignment of quota. The target's 100 million. When you add up everyone's quota, it's 300 million. If it's 120, that's reasonable. Uh, But 300 million, you're taking the piss. When taking on an SDR, talk to me about what a good onboarding process looks like. I think the first thing I like to say, and I, I, I say it because it's controversial, and that is SDRs can't survive in the wild. And what I mean by that is the SDR position, by definition, by structure, by design, will not succeed if just left to its own devices. There is too much that goes into it. The SDR does not determine who the audience is. They don't get to pick the ideal client profile 
or they do not get to pick the persona. And typically they don't even get to pick the strategy of if it's a top down or bottom up, et cetera. They do not get to pick the marketing message. They do not get to pick the value proposition. They do not get to pick often the tools that they use to do the job. So really this SDR is an actor, a voice actor on the end of a phone that everything that they say, everything that they do is controlled by a senior leader. So the fact that people think SDRs fail baffles me because SDRs don't fail. Sales leaders fail their SDRs. Granted, some might not be coachable, of course. Some might not put in the effort, of course. Like there's still some reasons why they might be bad. But that's a management issue because if they uh, hired them, then they've got a problem with their hiring process. um... Again, 100%, right? So, So I start off on the premise of this SDR is good enough and if they are if they succeed or fail it is based on me and my ability to extract value and to put the right strategy and the right messaging and the right audience and the right targeting at the right time with the right message and put that in the hands of my SDR so really when I start off I tell them in, not in a demeaning way but in a way that I hope brings them a bit of comfort I say all you have to do is deliver the lines like a script and if you do that and you perform the activities as they come up on your sale in your in your sales engagement platform, you will succeed. And if you're not succeeding, it's not your fault. Right? If we are not succeeding, if we are not getting the outcomes, then it is not your fault. And we will work together to tweak the message, to tweak the strategy, to tweak all of that until you are getting success. With time, once you are successful, I will teach you how to adjust the message. And then the next step and the next step and the next step. And eventually you might be able to build your own outbound motion. But to start off, I'm putting you in a successful one. That's my job. You start off successful and then I will teach you about outbound, you know, and, and all the creative elements that go into it. And eventually for you to be able to build your own and maybe move into leadership or let's, you know, practically you don't need to move into SDR leadership. We could teach you about the psychology of sales or marketing or whatever, you, whatever your next, you know, ambition is. And that's kind of how we approach onboarding an SDR. Okay, I'm really interested in the next iteration of that, which is what's the SDR's responsibility to the next person in? Typically, in, in, well, I can only speak for Pointer, but in Pointer, their responsibility is none. They have none. Okay. They have no responsibility to the next SDR. That is this, the SDR managers and leaders and VPs, like that is my okay. job and my leadership team's job. Okay. Okay. If I, I, I take is that on board. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so you, you see your job as hiring the right people and then creating the conditions for them to succeed and then coaching them so that they can become uh, self sustaining in the role until they need to learn how to do it for themselves. And, and that comes quickly because that always does come. And I'll tell you why. The reason that happens is that there is no outbound motion keeps working. It's almost the same. I think it's the same with like pay-per-click advertising. You like you optimize it and you get it to where you want it to be. You can run it for a while, but it just starts decreasing and decreasing and decreasing in its marginal benefits. And outbounds is the same. You can have a motion. You can say, this is the script. This is the audience. This is the market. And over time, it stops working. Some of it might just be trends change. Competition has come up buyers have become more educated, or maybe you're starting to move to a different persona, a different ideal client profile, a different market, 
a different vertical within the market, a different industry, different segment, whatever it might be. And now you need to change. So my hope would be that this SDR that we have now coached up and shown them how to be successful and made them successful, that by the time we are starting to make those shifts to new verticals, they need less and less input from leadership and can start doing that autonomously because we are focusing on the new SDRs who are still 100% my responsibility to make successful. Okay. And in terms of, uh, is there peer-to-peer learning? I'm curious how that works within the team because if people aren't leaving, chances are there's there's professional effort being given. We we built this um, training program that is... It's everything. The, it's one of the challenges with this SDR role, as you know, is you actually need two years worth of experience crammed into a person that has no experience. Mm-hmm. Right? Like to really be successful. And that's why the, the successful people are the SDR managers because they've done it long enough to know how to do outbound. Uh, that's why I really believe success sits in that management layer. So we have a great training program, a lot of on-the-job training, um, we, you know, we, your weekly one-on-ones, your peer learning, all of those things will encourage community, will encourage online courses, we encourage them to spend time on LinkedIn or follow their passions. We also have this beautiful understanding with every single person in our team that you do not want to be an SDR forever. I'm not trying to keep you here. That's not, that's not my job. If you wanted to be a career SDR, Point is probably not the right organization for you. And importantly, Pointer is an organization of SDRs. So when you want to finish being an SDR, you will be leaving Pointer. And I accept that. So in order for me, I need to have some really clever ways to get top talent. And we, we found a few of those. But we're very open with the fact that a sign of my success will be where you go to from here and how we can help you get there. So if you want an extra six months in the SDR role so that you can learn your marketing degree, you can up your game in your demand generation or whatever it is that you want to be learning next, amazing. Let us help you get there. In the meantime, you can comfortably buy yourself as much time as you want through running successful campaigns for our clients. And by the way, all of our clients have the option to take the SDRs in-house anyway, like attempt to per model, but again, besides the point. And, And because of that, I think people find comfort where they're doing something successful, being remunerated, you know, fairly for it, have a pleasant work environment. And you asked me the responsibility that peers have to peers. Well, I say to them, I've never sold in an interview. I tell everyone this is a shit job. This is a shit job. There's nothing nice about cold calling. The reason I started Pointer is because I have call reluctance. A successful, proud, you know, borderline overconfident seller with this deep, dark secret of Mm -hmm. I could fucking put off a cold call for so many reasons that if I had one call to make, I could make it at at 4.55 and still potentially find a reason to push it to the next day. And I realized like, if this is me, then this is a lot of people. So how can I take that pain away? Anyway, I digress. So I tell all of my SDRs, your one obligation you have to your peers is you all have a shit job. You all have a shit three hours, things that you're doing that aren't pleasant, who you do it with, the environment you're doing it in, all of the time that you're spending not with that ear to your phone, that can be whatever you want it to be, whatever you want it to be. So your obligation is to make this a great work environment. And that's it. Who are your inspirations around management and leadership then? 
to be honest, like I don't take a lot of inspiration from sales leaders. Mm-hmm. I actually work with a lot of great sales leaders as my clients. And I think I learn a lot from them, a hell of a lot. Like we, I've got some customers and I look at how they run meetings with like structure and always an agenda and always uh, summaries afterwards with action items. And, and I think, I know that's right. I'm too lazy. Like I don't ever get to do that. But You need a I'm good so, number two. <laughs> yeah, I'm just so impressed with how they do that. And I can learn that from them. So I learn a hell of a lot from my customers. And usually my customers are pretty progressive, open-minded and good thought leaders, which is the reason they've come to Pointer as opposed to trying to fail for the third time doing things by themselves, you know, and so I learn from my customers. I learn, I like, you know, um, Malcolm Gladwell, you know, Adam Grant. I, uh, there's some amazing thought leaders out there that are at that celebrity status or have, have done great things. But otherwise, honestly, there's more than enough inspiration in a very close circle to me with people I get to interact with on a daily basis. Okay, but I'm curious in terms of your previous uh, businesses, Growing up, did you have any influences there? Or again, was it just learning by failing? No, I think I, I definitely do, did have some inspirations. Um, my business partner, my first business partner was quite inspirational to me. I was at university studying full-time, also had a full-time job. My sister got a scholarship to Cambridge. She wanted to start a, a business. And he was like, well, why don't we just start it while your sister's at Cambridge so she can have this to run when she comes back, which is how I got into laser hair removal clinics. And he was the most phenomenal businessman, like genuinely and was formative in my early career, landed up stealing seven figures from me when I left the country. So uh, don't, you know, uh, look on the bright side, it was Rand. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It was Rand. Uh, Yeah. I still learned so much from that. And yeah, I wouldn't say I had any any major idols. I, I did grow up fortunate enough to have been brought up in South Africa and had a very entrepreneurial spirit, sometimes not for the best reasons. But you live in the land of of meat and money. And right. you have these gold, you know, you have these golden handcuffs that if you live like with such high anxiety, I think I used, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't know how much you know, but often, uh, you know, Jewish kids for their bar mitzvah get, uh, you know, some money, yeah. you know, not, not fortunes. I think I probably amassed like the equivalent of a thousand dollars, you know, which is right. a lot of money for a 13 year old kid yeah. like from generous gifts from friends and families. Anyway, I saved that till my 18th birthday to buy a gun. Right. Right. And I'm not, you know, I'm not like this, uh, you know, I don't know what your Gun-ho. Don't picture this like gun-ho American kind of uh, character, cowboy. This was more like high anxiety and my fear of living in an environment where I'd been held up at gunpoint numerous times. And you go to sleep at night. The, you know, the last thing you do before going to sleep at night is lock all the doors, put the alarm on, you know, and you wake up maybe because of the alarm once a month with, or once a quarter with a false alarm. So you literally wake up in the middle of the night thinking this is it. You know, it's, it's very traumatic. So yeah. you, you live in this society, but the benefit you get is you live like a king. Right. You don't have to make your bed. You don't have to cook your food. You can live like a king. And I grew up poor in the society. So we didn't, we didn't uh, live like that. So I had this drive and this ambition because if you're going to live in South Africa, you have to be rich. So yeah, I think that like really helped shape 
business ideas and the ambition and the drive to be successful. It also obviously exposed me to a lot of societal challenges and things that I wasn't comfortable with, you know, things that I try work today to try and help solve. Again, one of the reasons I'm, I'm so privileged to be in Australia now is I see a lot less of some of those challenges. But yeah, anyway, I know, fuck, how did I go so off topic here, Marcus? You, you didn't go off topic at all. You didn't go off topic at all. This is the reality of, um, you know, uh, how people evolve into who they are. And I'm interested to understand the beliefs, the values. Okay, my next question, this is a real bastard of a question. What do you regret in business? My biggest regret is I was too transactional at a young age. If I had stayed in contact with the people who weren't useful to me at the time, I would have the most phenomenal network. And I think that's my biggest regret that I was young and in business and at 19, this person was useful, this person was useful, this was a great network. And I put my efforts and emphasis there and I didn't stay in touch with the rest of the people from my university degree or the client that I had that wasn't a big client when I was 19. Had I done that, all of those people now when I'm 40 are senior leaders. Of they course. are, you know, experienced business yeah, professionals. You have to stalk them on Facebook. Had I just been better and yeah. calmer and more of a people's person about that long term, had I said, who do you need when you're 40, not who do you need now? Wow, I would be in a different position. I'm in a good position well, now, but that for me is like something that I definitely did wrong and I can't undo. That's really very interesting. Thank you for being so vulnerable on that. because. What's really interesting is when you start to look at regrets, often it uncovers where people's real values are. And what's really telling about that is it's about your values seem to be more focused around uh, relationship and building long-term trust. Now, this is really interesting because one of the things I wanted to uh, discuss with you is My thesis, which is consistently proven in the field, is if you move your focus from the short term to the medium term, and Mm -hmm. all of your pipeline generation activity is focused on that medium term pipeline, your short term pipeline problems disappear very quickly. But when the customer moves from passive to active looking, you're pretty much the only show in town because you've got the coverage, got the relationships, you've uh, consistently shown up. And what I think people forget is just how important it is to buyers to minimize their perceived risk. And that's why people don't respond well purely to cold. If you um, are having repeated conversations with people and you're not trying to sell to them, you're not being transactional, then you can limit the amount of uncertainty and vulnerability they have, which drops the perceived risk. So as they move, I agree. Um, say again? I, I, do, I do genuinely agree with that. The problem is still just that first conversation. I hear a lot of advice like you've given. If you could just have lots of conversations and not sell, then over time you build trust. The challenge is just that first conversation. That is like a pointy end where some people struggle. And yes, so let's talk about people who maybe aren't on LinkedIn. Let's start there. LinkedIn does make some things easier. You have this ability to social sell. How do we do the other 50% more 
who aren't on LinkedIn. Starting that first conversation is a real challenge. And we go into the approach and we tell all of our clients, outbound is, a mid, is about midterm outcomes. There's some kitsch terms, you know, like there's fat cash in the callbacks. But it's, the truth is that it is about that follow-up. So my favorite calls from my SDRs is when they say, spoke to so-and-so, he said, not right now, but give him a call in six months. Everyone sees it as a fob off. And I see that as amazing because if I can just get a hundred of these, call me back in six months. In six months, I've got a hundred people to speak to. He said, hey, you told me to call you back now. You know, and just checking if it is a good time. And those convert at a rate that you cannot believe. Right. Okay. So I think we're actually saying the same thing, which is try to uncover those who will be your medium term prospects. Yeah, now, I think that, that should and can also be a function of marketing sure. through your content, through uh, your inbound activity, through networking. But one of my favorite strategies at the moment is, well, certainly if you're selling enterprise, identify half a dozen partners who already do business with that customer and work on trying to establish relationships with them. And the this best strategy there is to try and align with what it is they already sell a lot of and they want to sell more of. They're not really interested in you know, a 10 or 20% commission. What they're interested in is selling their $3 million services project. Now, yeah. if by working with you, they can uh, sell more of those, all of a sudden you have their attention because you're making their lives easier. And mm. that, I think, is where a partner like Pointer could really come into their own. Well, it's funny you say that because for no, you know, no reason on our side, the majority of our clients have started becoming account-based sales and marketing motions yeah. where they're saying, Ricky, we've got a list of 100 customers in Australia. You know, our average contract value is potentially seven figures, but there's only 100 that we can talk to. And we don't want someone who's going to call 100 by, by lunchtime and be like, oh, they all said no. Well, what must we do? Close our business. We need a sophisticated sales motion here. And we start off, for example, take one of the customers and it's a research piece. You know, the why you, why now, why change, who's in the organization, uh, what we read their annual general reports, what were the strategic objectives from their, from their leadership, how does that align with their staffing structures, who they're looking to hire, like how can we identify what's on their priority list right now? We just weave this really wide net. And it's been incredibly successful because people's jobs depends on them solving problems. Every job exists, every job exists, every business exists to solve problems. And if they're not willing to talk about problems or how they can solve those problems, they're literally not doing their job. If you just approach them in the right way, of course they want to talk about it. I'm sure when they get home at dinner, their husband or wife is saying to them, stop bloody talking about this problem. We just want to talk about how your day was and the family stuff and anything other than work. They're obsessed with this problem, but they don't want to talk to you about it. And this is why I think I'm going to challenge you again. I think the intent that the caller has on making the call is felt by the other person through their limbic system uh, and you, you get reflected back what you project out. So if you start with the initial call 
on the basis of research instead of can I book a meeting in terms of your intent? Okay. Mm. Mind if I ask you a question? We're doing some research into CRO's uh, challenges, and a lot of them are telling us they have a problem with X. Would you spare me 30 seconds to answer one question? Okay. And start that way because then it's not really that painful for the seller. And they've started to lower the buyer's resistance, but they've also started to create just that little break in their internal voice that says, this is a stranger. Don't talk to strangers. Don't interrupt busy people. Of course. And and no one's going to discuss their problems with a stranger. If I say, hey, Marcus, how's your day? You'd say, fine, thanks, yours. Like, that's the response. Whereas, I don't know, your day could have been really shit. You could have a hundred things that aren't going right. You're still just going to say, fine, thanks, you. And that's the response we are soliciting when you ask, how's your day? Right. And this is the, you know, in the same mechanism, what outbound callers are doing wrong in the way they're going outbound. It, the obvious answer is a no, or potentially a small fraction of them might say yes, and you get lucky, but people aren't answering their phones. Email channels are absolutely clogged. LinkedIn, the culture at the moment is you can't just pitch slap. And it's just getting harder and harder. So you cannot position yourself for that. No, you have to be unique. You have to be relevant. You have to be personalized. You have to be performing in that top 1% or you're doing a disservice. And I want to just go back to one thing that you said earlier where you said you you also see marketing playing a role in, in starting these conversations. In my world, in my mind at least, this SDR function is a marketing role. Well, I think sales is a marketing role as well, because anything that touches the customer is, is marketing. And yeah. uh, that makes me desperately unpopular, but I have a friend <laughs> I don't need anymore. I do agree with you, but part of the problem here is that we've broken the function up for our convenience as an organization. And what I fundamentally believe we need to do is we need to start pulling it all together. So the different motions and the different parts um, do not create friction and a disconnect, and they don't have to start all over again. And the experience doesn't have to be exceptionally tedious. And the SDRs can be overheard by the AEs who's going to have to pick up the uh, the meeting when they eventually have it and guide them. Uh, Marketing can listen in and marketing should be having conversations with customers. But none of this stuff seems to happen. I still see there's still a role for that SDR AE complex, right? I still see it. It can be quite, it can be really effective and there's lots of reasons to do it. I don't mind the model at all. I do have a slightly different skin on why the SDR becomes useful and how you use them within these motions. So for example, having a person, if you're just looking at skill sets, you might have the most phenomenal seller, but they might be quite weak with administration, for example, or they are good in person. They're good at managing a relationship. They're good at forming rapport and building relationships, but they are genuinely capped out at like 50 people is who they could manage on their own mentally. But you actually need them to manage 200 relationships, which is overwhelming. So they need a lot of support. Exactly. Exactly. So the SDR can be part of the person helping, say, phoning the people within opportunities. Hey, um, you spoke to James uh, last quarter. You discussed this. 
he was really keen to to catch up with you again. Would you mind if I put some time in your calendar for you and James to catch up? As an example. Yeah. You know, almost doing it like a PA, right? As an assistant. That is useful because now your AE can handle four times as many relationships of because course. they've got a team member supporting them who's happy to make the calls, detail-oriented, doing research for opportunities, for prospects, reading the reports, listening to the podcast that the person was on that your AE does not have time for. And there you have this real beautifully symbiotic relationship. Thank you. Yes. Works extremely well. And also that SDR is now that link back into marketing. This is the messaging that's coming back. This is what's resonating. This is what's and not back working into for product. anymore. Back into products, 100%. It becomes a key, an absolute key role. And we do it so well when it's a partnership. My SDRs meet with the head of marketing and the VP of sales for our customers every week. And I can promise you that wow. meeting that we have with the head of marketing and the VP of sales every week and the SDR leads the meeting, you know, so Richard, you know, or Hannah, tell us about your week. And there the, the VP of sales saying, and tell me when you're getting this objection, what are you finding? And are you hearing more of this and you're hearing more of that because they are interested because this is the face of their customer. When they're interviewing my SDRs, when we're talking weekly and we're not interviewing, that's the wrong word, they are getting insights from their customer that they do not have through any other source. So like it's an incredibly valuable role when done well. And when done badly, it is literally just spam. It is useless. It is brand damage. It damages your company's culture because you're going to be churning through staff, people hating working for you. And done wrong, it is dangerous. It's exp very expensive as well. And the problem is this is often driven by the investors because they say um, you've got to go out and uh, recruit an army of SDRs so we can make all this noise. But I've got a belief and I'm seems to be playing out. I think a large number, probably 30 to 40% of sales jobs, especially a lot of the entry-level jobs, will disappear forever in the next 12 to uh, 24 months. I think a large number will um, then be outsourced either to the channel or to professional agencies like Pointer. And the reason I say this is the escalation in salaries and the escalation in the technology and the uh, data the arms race that associated with that. Uh, I was talking to uh, one SDR agency owner, and he's spending 20 grand a year per SDR on the tech stack and the data. Now, I don't know whether or not that's close to yours. No, we aren't. Uh, yeah, we're not quite at that number. We probably be about half that. Actually, I guess if you include data costs, for me, it's a little bit different because of how I've structured things. And the way I structured things, if you, you know that like T-shaped kind of skill matrix where you have a whole bunch of varied skill sets across the top and then yeah. one skill that you have a deep, okay. you know, deep yeah. knowledge in. What a SDR needs to be successful, right? If we just look at some of these skills, they've got to be able to write phenomenal emails that are on point, that are succinct, that are, are catchy, that they've got to be a copywriter, right? So they, they've got to have a lot of writing skills. They've got to be able to find people online, not just people. They've got to find people that are somehow indicating intent. They've got to find the right timing, the right person, extract their contact details, and use a whole lot of technical processes to enrich data. So they've got to be excellent at researching. 
then they've got to be very detail oriented, take notes on absolutely everything and be able to follow a thread, a very thin thread for over a year with thousands of people. So they've got to be exceptionally detail oriented, great with administration. They've got an overwhelming amount of tasks to do every day. So they also have to be very task driven. On top of that, they need to be able to talk to anyone, form rapport quickly, yeah, gain context and situational awareness quicker than fucking, you know, a fighter pilot can do their OODA loop. And all of this within one individual who this is their first fucking job. It is not possible to find that unicorn because if you find someone that good, great, but they're not going to want to be in that role very long. No. But broadly, they don't exist. So we've taken a slightly different approach where we said, you know who's good at copywriting? Copywriters. <laughs> Do you know who's good at doing research? Researchers. Researchers. Right? Like, and then we will have copywriters write the copy and, you know, get the message right and set up the messages. Maybe there's a small bit to, for the SDR to personalize, but even then they can just pop it in a Slack channel. Hey, what do you think of this? And we can start creating some snippets that become more standardized over time. And the researcher's pulling the list. So the SDR just rocks up in the morning and it says, yeah, there's a hundred people that we think would be good for you to, to prospect to and why. It's all there in front of them. So it's hard for me to put it onto an SDR cost because so many of the costs that might be part of that $20,000 is like a separate, this is a research cost and it's a research employee. And so we've specialized in that sense. So what you've done is you've created the conditions so SDRs can do the job of an SDR, which is speak to prospects. A hundred percent. You are becoming, you. all you need to do is you need to get in, you know, build that, that empathy muscle, get into that mindset of being a customer, understand that customer's perspective better than anyone else in this organization and help tell us why customers aren't interested in our product right now. That's what you can do. You're a marketing role. Tell us why they're not interested in our product right now. And they go out to the market saying, hey, we've got you, you know, tell me, do you have this problem uh, you know, are you looking to achieve these benefits? Whatever they're discussing. Hey, we've got a solution that looks a little bit like this. Is that interesting to you? Oh, it is. Great. We'll set you up with the meeting. Uh, and if not, well, let me understand why. Is it competition? Is it market conditions? Is it that the way we um, prefacing the problem or the solution is not interesting or enticing? So either way, there's very important feedback from that conversation that if this business doesn't fix, this business will fail. And so now this SDR is the most important role in the business because their feedback will determine if this company succeeds or fails, provided it's not a product-led growth market, in which case, you know, the product's doing that role. And that's how we set it up. So we are intently listening to these SDR conversations because on the back of how these conversations go, we'll determine if this company has a future or not. There's a really, really interesting approach. I don't know if you follow jobs, uh, use jobs to be done theory. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, and I think a, a good SDR campaign uh, around lapsed customers, customers who've recently flipped and bought uh, buying your product now, mm -hmm. uh, customers who are using your product or service in a weird or anomalous way, customers yeah. who are doing workarounds. And I think the CS function is a really massively underutilized resource. And all the data that sat in CS, they're speaking to customers every day, 
so it's funny in- that you brought this up because it was literally just yesterday that we had a strategic workshop with one of our customers discussing like how they're scaling in 2023 to meet to meet their targets and our advice and where the the you know they're feeling as well that this all sat within the cs function and what we were looking at is how are we going to use our sdrs I'd call them what you want, right? How are we going to use our team members who have a deep understanding of the problem, the solution, and are able to talk to your customers in a way that they uh, appreciate being spoken to? Because that's who our SDRs are. They're really customer I'm, insight managers, aren't they? Uh, more than anything, right? How are these, how are our SDRs or BDRs, whatever we want to call them, going to fulfill a role for the CS team. So whilst we're in this strategic conference, my, my customer says, hold on, no, no, I've got to get the, the CS manager in. So they call the CS manager in because this was a this was more first, you know, sales and marketing. We call the CS manager in and we say, all right, could we put some triggers in your product that when a customer has reached the maximum impact point within using your product, it triggers us to call them to set up a meeting for you? or either the CS team or to throw that back to the, the sales team. Like that's the point where they go back into sales for the upsell, cross-sell uh, motion. Or can you build a, product, a, a trigger into your product that when people don't use a certain feature by a certain time, it triggers us to set up a call to call them to try get them in with support to see if we can help them achieve impact from your product. Because right, you want them to will, use it. It's adoption and utilization that you're after. Exactly. So we're now being plugged directly into their product to say, when this pings, we call them for this reason. When this pings, we call them for that reason. When this pings, we call them to set up a meeting back for the sales team. So we are becoming now a strategic resource within their system where we integrated with their CRM. This happens, pings, our person gets a task, which is what they used to anyway, right? The task pops up for them saying, you need to call this person for this reason. Uh, with this context and they call and set up the meeting because that is their job. It's connecting the company with the customer at the right time to have the right conversation. So, and I'm more excited about that than I am about so much of the top of funnel. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Well, that's the important bit. The problem is that most of um, sales and marketing motions, because of the way the CRM system is set up and the obsession with the wrong metrics is you're, Obsessing about the top of the funnel, as soon as you put it into the CRM, it asks you when the close date is. And then all the emphasis is on closing and none of the middle bit. And the middle bit is where all the real value uh, occurs. That's the real selling. It's not just the kick open the door. Selling is the facilitation of buying. It's helping people make the right purchase for now and the future, whether it involves you or not. And you know, they need to feel safe. They need to feel that you have their back and you're not just seeing them as a, um, an organic ATM machine. Absolutely. I see like in every CRM I look at, I'll be like, where's your, uh, you know, you've got your deal stages and just after closed one or closed lost, they'll add a column there called nurturing. <laughs> and that's where everything goes because I don't want to close lost it, right? I don't want to close lost and we haven't won it yet. So we know we're nurturing it, right? And similarly, when if I'm trying to talk to a sales leader and they say, no, we're going to do this in-house. I might say to them, amazing, right? Like, absolutely. Because I, I mean, firstly, I say to all of my customers a little bit facetiously, you're a clever person. You make great decisions. You're part of an organization with great people making great decisions. You will get outbound right. You will 100% get outbound right on your second or third try. <laughs> <laughs> because you need 
Because you need, as a great decision maker, you need feedback coming back to you for you to say, okay, this happened, now do that. This went wrong, this is how I'm going to do it right. The only way you're going to get it right first time is if you already know what to do. So tell me, do you need this done right first time? Or are you happy getting it right on your second or third? And, and often they're happy to get it right second or third. It's cheaper. It's still cheaper, right? And power to them. I was like, you know, I'm still going to support you. Like I, I, every single one of my prospects, I'm still talking to every couple of weeks because they're calling me for advice. Absolutely no problem. Love it. And, but I do so set you, a trigger. Again, how many of those prospects did you contact cold? Not many. Honestly, I haven't had the time. But I also, my product that I sell, I don't think is a great fit for outbound sales. And, and the one reason that is, is because the trigger point for when people typically try offer outbound services or, or agency services is when they're hiring. Oh, you hiring an SDR? Would you consider rather using an agency for that SDR? But they've already made a decision to hire. Yeah. Right. They've already gone down that route. So I rather, if I do see that, I set a trigger saying, Hey, I know you're hiring now. Here's a massive guide that I've put together and the full onboarding plan that I have for all of my SDRs. Use it for free with the greatest of pleasure. I, I wish you the best of luck. Do you mind if I contact you in six and months to see cold, how it's going? That's, that's cold. cold. That's cold. But I'm, I'm not even asking for a meeting. I'm just saying, here's, here's something. Okay, so uh, just to make my point again, yeah. what you've just done is you've identified a medium-term prospect and you've yeah. done a gentle giving outreach that involves no pressure and then you've maintained contact. So when they're ready and they're hiring, then all of a sudden, bang. Well, I normally do this when they're hiring. So like when they're hiring, hey, Marcus, I can see you're hiring an SDR. But the next time they're, they're hiring. Exactly. We're too late on this one to talk about outbound. Either way, here's pointers like bloody excellent training program. Give it a give it a shot. Six months later, I say, how's it going? And they're like, uh, well, we actually we we filled that role, fired that person, filled the role again, just fired that person. It's your timing's impeccable. Can we chat? Excellent. Yeah, and I could almost set my clock to it. Well, when, when we finish the call, let me just make an introduction to you because I think I may have a way of even speeding that process up and giving you greater insight. But Amazing. we've come to the top of the hour. This has been an absolutely fabulous interview. Thank you. How can people get hold of you, Ricky? Ricky.pearl at pointerstrategy.com. Pointerstrategy.com.au as well as the website. Pretty proud, as I mentioned, of that Australian heritage or on LinkedIn. Excellent. Ricky Pearl, thank you. Thanks for having me on. So Marcus Cappy signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this, then please like, comment, share, subscribe. Leave me um, a testimonial on the favorite podcast about the podcast. Just give a, um, a review. By the time this goes out, it'll be well over 440, 450. So we'd really appreciate your support. Spread the word, tell lots of other people. And if you want to get hold of me, then Marcus at laughs-last.com uh, if you want to be a guest. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.